And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family, a talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're going to be talking about how to evaluate risk factors in adoption. Creating a Family is a weekly radio show, podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. I'm your host, and I am Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We are the national education, uh, adoption and infertility education organization uh, our mission is to provide unbiased, accurate information to pre- and post-adoptive parents as well as to the infertility patient community. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Finding cancer does not have to mean a loss of fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medication through Faring's Heartbeat program. It's all one word, Heartbeat. To learn more, you can visit their website at heartbeatprogram.com. Or, of course, you can talk to either your oncologist or your reproductive uh, endocrinologist uh, to get more information as well. Uh, as always, we are thrilled to have our wonderful sponsors, who allow us to bring you this show and all of our resources without charge. Our gold sponsors include Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been providing adoption services for more than 50 years with offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, Kentucky. They have an international program, a domestic program, a foster care program, and their Snowflakes embryo donation program as well. We also have independent adoption centers whose mission is to provide open adoption placements and counseling to birth and adoptive families, and they work in families with all, in all 50 states, <clears throat> and they are fully licensed in California, New York, Florida, Texas, and more. And then we have All Blessings International. They're an adoption agency with offices in Missouri and Kentucky, and they work with families throughout the U.S., placing children from Congo, Haiti, Hong Kong, Latvia, Taiwan, and El Salvador. They also have a domestic infant program. And we have Children's Connection, Inc. They're an adoption agency with offices located throughout Texas, and they provide domestic infant adoption. They also have an embryo donation program. They can do home studies uh, in Texas, and they have post-adoption support for families throughout the United States. And Bethany Christian Services. They are a global nonprofit organization dedicated to empowering children and families. They are committed to quality social services along the child welfare continuum. And these services range from pregnancy counseling and family preservation all the way to foster care and adoption. And again, we have other, these are our gold sponsors. We do have other sponsors as well, and you can get information about them on the service provider page of our website, creatingafamily.org. And the service provider is uh, on the blue horizontal menu. And when you support those who support us, you help us, and we thank you. As I mentioned, uh, today's show is what we're calling, uh, it's going to be on evaluating risk factors in adoption. This is one of our classic uh, radio shows from the archives. It is also probably the show that I have referred to and linked to the most often. The information is truly terrific. Our guest is Dr. Dana Johnson. He is the director of the International Adoption Clinic at the University of Minnesota and a professor of neonatology. Uh, and we talk about, he and I talked about, uh, a, uh, just a tremendous amount of, of information that will help adoptive parents uh, pre-adoption make the decision on whether or not this birth mother match or this international adoption referral is one that they are best able to parent. It is a heartbreaking decision, a very difficult decision for many uh, adoptive parents 
And, uh, and, and quite frankly, they often have so little support as far as information, really good information for determining how to go about making this decision. Um, I think it is, it is absolutely crucial to provide support and, and information in our, one of our missions here at Creating a Family is uh, our, our mantras, I should say, is information is power. Uh, so I, I am thrilled to present this uh, Dr. Johnson again. He is a friend to Creating a Family. He has been a long-term supporter and has been on the show a number of times, and he is just really terrific. So I hope you enjoy this show. Welcome, Dr. Dana Johnson, to Creating a Family. Thank you very much, Don. You know, I, I should tell everybody that I also owe Dr. Johnson a debt of gratitude that when I was writing the uh, complete book of international adoption, he was one of my top resources and was always extremely kind about answering my questions um, on a lot of the same topics we're going to be talking about today, how to interpret uh, the, the myriad of confusing issues that often we see um, in uh, referral information. Um, I feel a little bit like Br'er Rabbit having been thrown into the briar patch. I am a total research geek, and uh, I would absolutely love to dive immediately into talking to you about your current research and what you're finding. But I want credit for all my listeners out there that I'm going to be delaying gratification and waiting till the end of the show uh, before I, I uh, talk uh, about that. But, but rest assured, I will leave information. Um, Dr. Johnson, I'm going to jump right in. We have a... As, <laughs> Probably is no surprise to you. You were one of the first international adoption doctors that were out there. You've been doing this international adoption medicine for a long time, isn't that right? No, that's right. Yeah, almost, well, close to 25 years. Yeah, I actually think you probably were the first. I, I mean, I say that without any having uh, checked it, but, uh, well, there were a few others actually that probably were uh, kind of getting into the field about the same time, and I think that the international adoption clinic at the University of Minnesota probably was the first clinic that specialized in um, evaluating referrals. Um, so you probably aren't going to hear anything terribly new. Let me jump right in. Uh, here's a question from Shirley. My husband and I are adopting our first child from China. With the China process, I believe a brief medical report is sent along with a referral to the prospective adoptive parents. Once the parents travel to China to adopt their child, there seems to be a 24-hour period after the child is placed with the parents, but before the final adoption papers are signed, where a parent can raise an alert and ask for more medical testing if they notice an issue. From my reading, it seems that on rare occasions, a parent will ask for additional medical testing if they suspect that their child may have an undisclosed issue, such as a hearing loss. Oftentimes, it seems that these parents have experience working with children, either in a school or a medical setting. As I do not have an occupational therapy or medical background, I am wondering if your guests can recommend any activities that a new parent can do with their child within those first 24 hours, which could flag if a child may have an undisclosed medical issue. Well, that's a very good question, and I, I'm sure that uh, many families are, are concerned about that when they go over to uh, China to pick up their child, or really any any country. Um, well, China is is more advanced than many countries in terms of their their medical diagnoses. We do see situations where where children arrive with uh, undisclosed problems, um, and sometimes there are significant issues, although most of the time they're they're really not. Um, it, it's difficult to put a parent in the position of being a medical professional when at the same time they're they're trying to be a mom or a dad and uh, fight jet lag and uh, deal with their child's uh, often uh, emotional distress at being taken out of the environment that they're uh, that they're used to. So it, it can be it a couldn't be a worse issue. time to try to evaluate a child. Let's no, that's know. right. It really it really is a very very difficult time, and I know that. You know, some families go over there as a group, and oftentimes there's a, a physician uh, or experienced parent um, with that group, and that's obviously a, uh, a lifesaver for uh, families who are concerned about issues. Um, depending on where they are traveling, sometimes there are other medical professionals that are reliable that can help them. But I think as a, as, a, as a just general rule of thumb, what you want to see is, is how that child reacts to you and reacts to what's going on, on around them and how they respond. Um, you know, children who are totally shut down um, are sitting in the corner rocking, don't respond uh, at all, uh, having a lot of stereotypic movements like hand flapping. Um, you know, those are situations that uh, indicate pretty significant neglect uh, 
and uh, could indicate longer-term uh, medical issues. Obviously, if a child does not appear healthy, um, is you know very underweight, is uh, you know physically ill, either with respiratory problems or with uh, uh, diarrhea or vomiting, um, that deserves uh, attention as well. Uh, sometimes it's 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 pretty obvious when kids have hearing problems that they just don't respond to anything. But uh, hearing issues are relatively common in kids in institutions. Most of the time it's due to fluid in the ears and it's correctable. Mm -hmm. And it can be very subtle. Um, kids generally don't have very good language uh, in their country of origin, especially if they've been in an institution where they don't have very much one-to-one -one interaction. So language is not a particularly good uh, indicator of, of uh, hearing problems. Right, and also, unfortunately, the age of the child would, you know, exactly. certainly, yeah. You now, most, most kids from China are coming at, you know, close to a year of age or even a little bit beyond that, kind of depending on the waiting period that the parents have had. So, you know, if a child is, is interacting to some degree, um, if they seem to be responding to sounds, um, it's very, very difficult to discriminate children with mild problems. The best you can do is discriminate children who are so profoundly abnormal that they appear that way just about to anybody. I'm getting a notice that your the sound is a little off. I'm not you're not on a um, um, on a speaker, uh, so no. I'm not I'm not sure why that is. But um, before we leave, what uh, she is correct, Shirley is correct about the medical reports uh, coming from China. There's a fair amount of discrepancy amongst countries as to how good the medical information you're going to get beforehand because certainly you know, one solution to this problem is to have a notice up front of developmental or, or physical problems with the child. What countries have the better uh, reports and which ones are more similar to what we see from China? Sure. As a rule of thumb, uh, the better the socioeconomic situation is in the country, the better the medical system and the more detailed and accurate the medical reports are going to be. So, for instance, from Korea, which has a very high standard of living, a very good medical system, we get very detailed reports that are highly accurate, um, and you know we can rely on them. Uh, um, we get they're extraordinarily detailed. It's an yes. interesting. Yeah. Uh, almost too detailed at times, but you get a lot of information. Lot what of about from the um, countries from Russia and other uh, um, uh, European countries and, and, and uh, Central Asian countries? Sure. Um, the the majority of medical reports we see from, from Russia or from countries that used to comprise uh, the Soviet Union are based on a Russian medical system and system of diagnoses that is very unfamiliar to most uh, physicians in the United States. So consequently, you'll see a lot of uh, kind of strange diagnoses, perinatal encephalopathy, um, uh, vegetovisceral syndrome, uh, uh, pyramidal syndrome, things that sound like diagnoses that we would use in this country, often scary diagnoses, mm -hmm. but turn out to be kind of typical things that are used within the Russian medical system to denote problems that we may not even uh, identify as an, as an issue. Um, in terms of um, Russian uh, medicine, uh, their, their reports are based on the report of a number of specialists. Um, so a child will have uh, be seen by a surgeon and by a, uh, you know even a gynecologist, uh, many many physicians with different specialties, because that's just the way they do things. Um, and the information, on the most part, is is accurate. Um, there are a lot of um, diagnostic tests that are done that are read differently than we would read them in this country. Uh, again, it's uh, an idiosyncratic way that they that they do things over there, and they do not necessarily mean that a child has a major medical problem. So I remember the first time I looked at a Russian medical report, and I thought the child certainly had cerebral palsy. And then I read a little bit further, and, and it clearly wasn't cerebral palsy. So you can even experienced physicians, if they're not used to looking at the way uh, Russian physicians report um, the health of a child can be uh, tricked into thinking that uh, a child does or doesn't have a, a particular problem. So the, the reports in general are, are fairly accurate, though not as accurate as they would be from Korea, mm -hmm. but they're filled with, with diagnostic terms that are confused.
confusing and really need to be interpreted by someone who's used to looking at them. Area code 318, you're on the air. Area code 318, do you have a question? We, no, I'm just listening. Okay, you can listen through your radio. I mean, I'm sorry, radio. You can listen through your uh, computer. Here is a email from Stuart. My wife and I have decided that the best way for us to become parents is to adopt. We, however, are not prepared to adopt a child with a lot of lifelong problems. I respect people who do that, but it is not something that we are able to do. Of course, if our child develops a problem later, that's the luck of the draw, and we will deal with it. I found your book to be forthright and direct on this subject, so I trust that you won't judge us for wanting this. My question to you and your guest is, what country would you recommend we should consider if a healthy child is our top priority? And, and when you're responding to this, Dr. Johnson, also, I usually will include the United States. When people ask a question about a, a country, I like to include the United States uh, as well. So what would you recommend to Stuart and his wife? Well, um, first of all, uh, don't feel bad that you want a normal child. Um, I've been in adoption and I've been in uh, newborn intensive care for, you know, decades, and uh, it's extremely unusual that a parent will come up to me and say, "Hey, I want to, I want to have a normal child." We, that's mm-hmm. a that's a normal expectation, and people do feel guilty about do. saying that uh, because. And you know, I, I, amen. I just want to say I so agree with what you're saying. It's nothing wrong with wanting a healthy child. No, and that's 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 the standard that uh, we all want uh, for our birth children or for our adopted children. So that's that's perfectly normal. And you know, people uh, sometimes feel bad about. Uh, well, you know, I really shouldn't look too carefully at this adoption information. I really should just take this child that's been referred to me because that's the way it's supposed to be. Well, you have choices when you have a birth child, and you have choices when you have an adopted child, and they're different choices, but I feel that you should take advantage of of all the choices that you have in life. Uh, If you're having a birth child, you can get prenatal care, you can avoid alcohol uh, and caffeine, you can you can take prenatal vitamins, stay out of the hot tub, etc., and that is designed to have as normal a child as possible. And you can do the same thing for an adopted child, although the, the choices that you have are different. So, where to go? Uh, it's a very, uh, it's a very uh, interesting question, and it changes uh, over time. Um, what I would say is that there are normal, beautiful children in every country that place uh, in the United States for adoption. Um, there are also going to be kids that present future challenges in every country as well, uh, and it all boils down to the individual child. So, at the, at the, you know, the, the, the end of the of the of the search, you have to look at each individual child and not necessarily the country of origin. However, there are some some places that uh, um, pose different risks. Um, First of all, let me let me say something about changes over time. Um, when I started in the, the adoption clinic in 1986, we had um, many countries that placed basically normal children. Korea was one of them. Um, some of them had problems, but for the most part, they were you know healthy infants. Um, there are few countries now that place a lot of normal infants, um, primarily because. Domestic adoption has has grown in many of the countries that place children in the United States. And families in those countries want as normal a child as as possible, so they stay within the country. Uh, What we're seeing now in Korea is that most of the kids that are being referred are kids that do have some issues um, that um, have taken them out of the pool for potential adoption in their country of origin. China has initiated a a completely new program of, of special needs kids. And, you know, if we look at the uh, countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union, uh, what we see uh, is a very high use of of alcohol and drugs. So that places kids at risk. So where I have sent people in the past is to either Korea or China if they are looking for as normal a child as possible. But the waiting period for a normal child in in China uh, has gotten much longer, and the criteria uh, that permit people to adopt have uh, grown more stringent. Um, Korea, as I mentioned, has gone to much more of a special needs program, although the special needs that these children present with often are issues that we can be fairly comfortable that the child will uh, 
will uh, do well. Uh, Guatemala, we you know we used to see uh, primarily infants, uh, and they were primarily normal. But of course, Guatemala is, is essentially closed uh, right now. India continues to place children, uh, but again, we're dealing with the situation where we have a great deal of poverty, um, and so some of the children uh, do have issues and uh, uh, may have uh, lifelong uh, problems. So I think that there are there are countries where you can stack the deck in your favor of adopting. Uh, what do you see like in Ethiopia child? or any of the other African countries? Well, Ethiopia, Ethiopia actually is is uh, a country that uh, I have sent people to as well. Um, the programs that are in Ethiopia right now are, are quite good. Uh, they're very uh, excellent at taking care of the kids while they are in care. Uh, children get placed relatively quickly. And for the most part, we've seen uh, um, lovely children coming from Ethiopia with with, uh, with few problems. And do you ever uh, do you feel comfortable um, opining any at all on on the the, the uh, health of children coming domestically? U.S. infant adoption is also foster care adoption. Um, right. And and first of all, I think whether you're adopting from abroad or if you're adopting from this country, you're facing the same issues. Um, if you're adopting a child who's been institutionalized abroad versus adopting a child from the foster care system who's been in multiple foster placements, the uh, the issues are going to be the same. Now, many individuals will not choose to adopt from the foster care system because they're afraid of emotional and behavioral issues. Uh, and that can be an issue, but it, it's false to think that those issues will not be present in kids coming from abroad. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, Irrespective of the care environment that the child has been in, if they are institutionalized or if they have multiple caregivers in foster care, they're going to have the same uh, issues whether they're from this country or from abroad. The difference is you may know about them here and you may not know about them prior to the adoption abroad. And you'll get usually monthly support to help you uh, afford that child and the care that child might need if you adopt from the U.S. rather than abroad. Those are the differences. Exactly. Now, doing the infant adoptions... um, especially open infant adoptions, is, is an option. Uh, many families have chosen not to do that because it uh, can be extremely time-consuming and frustrating. Um, the the issues that, that pop up with birth parents um, that way are often the similar ones that we see uh, abroad. Um, drug use, alcohol use, uh, et cetera, can be present in those situations as well. So I think that you're not going to um, encounter fewer problems or more problems, um, it's it's basically where you want to stay and uh, um, spend your time during the adoption process. We just received this email from Becky. She says, many of the situations that we are presented with in the domestic infant programs have been an expectant mother who has mental illness in her history. Are there any studies or research available that discuss the genetic link between different mental disorders? Well, it all, yes, it's a great question, and we, we run into this uh, in, in all fields of adoption. Uh, when you think of um, abroad, when, you're, when you have children going into orphanages, um, these, are, these are disadvantaged individuals, and they're often disadvantaged um, parents who have mental illness, too. So we know that uh, through a very large Danish study um, looking at international adoption, that Kids are at higher risk, you know, marginally so, but still uh, higher risk of uh, conditions such as schizophrenia, and it probably is because there is a uh, definite genetic link between uh, schizophrenia and uh, it coming forward in the generations. Now, if you have one parent with schizophrenia and you're raised by that parent, your risk is about 10% of developing schizophrenia over time. However, the interesting thing is that there's an interplay between environment and genetics, and that if you have a schizophrenic parent and you're raised in a normal household, your risk can be a third of that of a child raised with a schizophrenic parent. So your risk may only be about 3% or 4% of having schizophrenia. So the the environment that a child is raised in is um, a very um, modulating factor. And so when, when families are adopting children who has one parent um, with a mental illness, 
it, I think it, it makes them feel better knowing that they really can have an impact on whether this disease um, comes out. What about other mental illnesses such as uh, bipolar, manic depressive, whichever? This, this is an area that I am not an expert in, but my impression is that they're all complex, multifactorial types of inheritance where you have an interplay between your genes and interplay between your environment. And I think it's going to be a similar situation for bipolar disorder. You know, and before we move off of Stuart's question, let me just go back and, and say that kind of in summary, um, as far as where to find the healthiest children, I think you can look at why children are entering, coming into care. And I think that's the same thing that you, that you were saying, Dr. Johnson, but if you're looking at countries where um, the, the people who are struggling for um, reasons of alcoholism or mental illness or where the children are being removed from the homes because the parents who are abusive are neglectful, then you're going to see a higher percentage of children with problems, whether they're lifelong or whether they can be overcome is another issue. But if any, there are still countries, uh, China is an example, and in some ways Korea is as well, where the reason that children are being placed for adoption has uh, little to do with the um, uh, the domestic problems of the of the birth parent, but to do with either the one child policy, as is in um, Korea. I mean, as it's in China, or in Korea, the unwed status, and in Taiwan, the unwed status of the parent. So I think that you can look as that that that's an indication that you can. Um, that would would guide you as to choosing uh, which country. Absolutely. Although I think you're right, though that the thing that has skewed that a bit is is the the really uh, the the ascent now of uh, more domestic adoption. Um, I'd like now to talk about some of the information that that's usually available to prospective parents before they decide whether or not that this is the child for them, but that they could look for to signs of significant mental or physical health issues down the line. Uh, we received a number of questions that will kind of lead us to talk about some of the different risk factors that parents may have notice of in the medical report or information that's given to them. Here's one. What do you make of a referral of a three-year-old child who was born at the fifth percentile for height and weight but quickly fell off the bottom of the chart and continues to fail to thrive? This child was institutionalized for the first two years and went into foster care the third year. There is no available information on speech, fine or gross motor skills, Height and weight information, birth through present, is contradictory. Inexplicable gains and losses in both height and weight, but all of it indicates that the child is severely undersized. So what I'd like to do is use this question as a springboard to talking about what growth information is important, what you can tell from this growth information, and, and what, what might it mean for this child. Well, it's an excellent question, and, and certainly growth information um um, is, is, is the only objective information that we can get from medical reports uh, for the most part. Um, you know, having, having someone say this is a, a normal child, uh, you know, is a qualitative indicator, whereas, you know, if they actually put the measurements down and we can look at the head size uh, and body size, we can have a little bit better idea of what's actually going on. So we do spend a great deal of time looking at, looking at growth. Um, Growth is, a, is probably the most powerful indicator of general well-being of a child. And, of course, it, it indicates uh, not only nutritional uh, intake, uh, but also whether this child has any uh, medical conditions that might prevent normal growth. And, and it also is a, a pretty strong indicator of the care environment that that child may have been in. So children who are not growing well um, certainly pique our interest. And, uh, and make us look for what might be happening. Now, if a child, the, the usual growth of normal children within institutional care settings, and I'm talking about kind of your average orphanage, not a particularly good one, not a particularly bad one, um, is below the normal um, range, the normal uh, percentile. So, for instance, a normal child will grow along the 50th percentile, which is right in the middle of the growth curve, uh, a child in an orphanage probably would grow along uh, the 10th percentile. Um, so there are going to be some kids in the normal range, but a lot of kids below the normal range. So you've shifted um, your growth uh, about one to one and a half standard deviations below where we would normally see. 
Um, so there's a, there's a certain level of growth failure that we would expect with institutional care, and that's due to both nurture and probably some degree of uh, nutritional insufficiency as well. Where we really get concerned is when we see poor head growth. And the reason we're, we're concerned about poor head growth is that head growth correlates one-to-one -one with brain growth during the first few years of life. And most brain growth occurs during the first few years of life. And children with small heads, we know in the future, will have cognitive disabilities. They may look perfectly normal in terms of their motor abilities, but when they get to be six or seven, when you can actually start doing more sophisticated IQ testing, those kids are going to test lower. We know that um, in the normal population, if you get to be, uh, if you have a very small head size, um, we use standard deviations, so three standard deviations below the mean, this is a very small head size, that kids will have a 50-50 chance of being mentally retarded. In an institution, it's even worse, uh, and we know the kids with three standard deviations below the mean in terms of their head size have about a 100% chance of being mentally retarded. Head size is the single best predictor. It's not the greatest in the world, but it's the single best predictor of future IQ at the time of adoption. Um, so if a child has a small head size, and even if it goes along with a small body size, um, people, people sometimes think if it's proportional, it's, that's okay, but that's not. If you have a small head size, that would indicate that a child has real risk for a lower IQ and attention problems. So that's why we pay a lot of attention to where that head is plotting. If the, if the head is not growing, that's a very, very bad sign. And I would be very suspect on how that uh, child is going to do in the future. Now, we do see kids whose head sizes are in the normal range, but still have height and weight that are way below the normal range. I'm much more optimistic about those kids. Now, nutrition does play a role in cognitive development. And children who are um, underweight for their height um, are at a disadvantage of, uh, in terms of their future IQ, but not as much so as if, as if their head is small. So um, those children will actually catch up very, very nicely in terms of growth after arrival, at least the vast majority of them will. And as long as their head size is in the normal range, I'm not so worried about their weight and their height being lower. And here's a question from Rachel. We are adopting domestically. A birth mother has chosen us. From what we can tell, she has gained very little weight and does not eat, does not seem to eat much at all. What she does eat seems to be all junk. How important is prenatal, prenatal nutrition to long-term health and intelligence? Well, another good question. And, and prenatal nutrition uh, is quite important. Um, First of all, uh, the fetus is a, is a, is a wonderful scavenger and, and will often draw off a mom, even if she's not eating well enough to, to grow normally. So the, the bottom line is, how's the baby growing? If the, if the baby is not growing well, then, that, then that's, a, that's a problem. Um, Twenty years ago, people wanted to make sure that women didn't gain too much weight during pregnancy, and now the, the situation has changed over to making sure that there really is adequate weight gain uh, in order to mm -hmm. provide good nutrition for uh, for moms. Gosh, so, back in the what the 50s and 60s, women were strongly encouraged to gain less than 20 pounds because no, they thought it would make for yes. an easier birth. I remember women getting on the scales in the doctor's office, the doctor coming on chastising them because they gained a pound over the last week. Yeah. So, you know, we uh, we, we switch around uh, on a regular basis about things like this. But, um, you know, I, w I, would, I would find out how the baby's growing. And if the baby's not growing, then it would be, you know, better to have a dietitian talk with that mom and see if she can eat something that uh, might be more... Uh, uh, nutritious and allow her to gain a little bit more weight. Here's a question from Beatrice. We have to decide whether to, we would accept a referral of a child born premature. Can you talk about the risks of prematurity? How premature does a child have to be to have long-term problems? Does the weight of the child matter or is it only how many weeks early that matters? Great. Good question. Um, Premature babies um, can do beautifully. Um, I was a premature baby. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have a large number of children born prematurely who, who have no problems in the future. A general rule of thumb, 
the earlier the birth, the lower the birth weight, the more problems kids have. However, with modern newborn intensive care, even uh, children who were born uh, three, three and a half months premature can grow up and uh, and be, be normal kids. The likelihood of normal development is greater the closer the child is to um, full term. The, 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 the opportunity to be normal is greater uh, for children, even if they're premature, if they're not sick. So it all depends on the individual situation of the child. And of course, very premature babies can, can go and do very, very well with, with, with no issues at all during the, the perinatal period. And other children have catastrophic uh, um, conditions that, that occur after birth and, and the, you know, at 34 weeks, 32 weeks, those two babies are going to turn out to be very, very different. So um, it all depends on the um, size of the baby when they're born, uh, the gestational age, and how sick that child was. Uh, so both the weight does matter as well as the gestational age. They, they right. both now, matter. Now, you know, we people get confused about the whole issue of, of low birth weight, and there, and there are classifications for low birth weight. But there are also, there's also a term called small for gestational age, or SGA. And these are children who are who weigh less than they should for that particular gestational age, which means they've suffered some degree of intrauterine malnutrition. And those children will be at even increased risk uh, for that gestational age simply because they have another um, strike against them. Mm-hmm. Which is why we say usually that a full-term baby that is a low birth weight is a greater concern exactly than a premature right. baby that is right. at low birth weight. Because you would expect a premature baby to be at a low weight. Right. Exactly. Uh, they still needed to cook a little longer. But the uh, right. full-term baby, there's that interuterine malnutrition, uh, which apparently is what um, Beatrice is worrying about. Yes. Um, here's a question from Judy. We're considering a teen adoption, so would like to know what to look for and what to ask about older children. We have adopted two at 26 months and realize that an older child is a completely different experience. I look forward to this program. Um, and I'd like to expand Judy's question to include a discussion about how important is age as a predictor of emotional problems such as attachment or, or the lack thereof. I think of all the, the research I did uh, prior to writing uh, the book, this was the hardest thing for me to pin down because the studies are not, uh, the, the studies are quite contradictory as to how much of a risk factor is age. So I'd like to both answer Judy's question, but if you could start by talking about age as a risk factor for future sure. problems. Well, I think that, you know, when we're talking about um, a situation where, where kids are in an orphanage, they've been there their whole life, you know, when do you need to get them out before you start seeing a higher risk of permanent uh, problems? Uh, the simple answer is two years. Um, the data that's coming out of various studies right now seem to indicate that if you get children out of an adverse environment uh, where they're being neglected and into a family before two years of age, that their outcome is generally better than kids after two years of age. Um, now, you know, that's, you don't fall off the face of the earth at two years of age. Um, it's a biologic spectrum. And I never dissuade people from adopting children who are older than that because, for the most part, um, even though there may be subtle differences uh, or maybe not, um, the experience that families have adopting older children is, is, is almost universally positive. Mm-hmm. Um, but, there are, but there are situations that, uh, that do occur. Um, so... The older the child gets, um, the more issues there may be, particularly in situations like attachment. Um, but probably looking at the experience of that child prior to adoption starts getting um, even more important after two years of age. Um, if that child has been in a more nurturing environment, their outcome is going to be better. If that child has been in a, in a terrible and abusive environment, that outcome is going to get progressively worse. So when you're adopting an older child, and I would say any child, um, you know, you could you could define it as any child older, older than two, but but maybe um, maybe a child over six, and certainly a teenager. First of all, I think you have to realize that that those adoptions are a higher risk situation. But it's it's uh, it's not because well, it's it's because of the experience that that child has had before. 
So adopting a teen who, you know, was well taken care of, didn't have very many uh, placement changes, um, is showing normal development, is going to be a very different situation than, than adopting a teen who's been through 15 or 20 placements, um, has diagnosed uh, uh, behavioral problems, uh, etc. I, I think you have to look at each individual child because it's going to be enormously important um, to look at the previous experience that that child has had to know what issues may come up um, for that older child. One of the advantages in adopting an older child is that you can, especially a teen, you can talk with the child. Um, and, it's, and with older children, certain conditions um, are easier to detect. Uh, and, and so I think there are certain advantages that age brings. Exactly. Um, and and uh, but the, but as you say, there there are disadvantages. You are listening to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're talking with Dr. Dana Johnson, founder of the International Adoption Clinic at the University of Minnesota and researcher with the International Adoption Project. Well, as you can imagine, Dr. Johnson, we've received a lot of questions about fetal alcohol syndrome and and how to tell in advance from information you receive and how the children post-adoption are faring. I'm not going to read them all, but here's an example from Jillian. We are planning on adopting from Russia, but the fear of adopting a child with lifelong problems from fetal alcohol syndrome is scaring us. How common is it from Russia, and what are the what are the primary warning signs? Uh, and, and actually, let me go ahead and say, and along these same lines, I also received two ma- two emails asking if you saw that the incident of FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome, or fetal alcohol spectrum disorders from Russia is increasing now since uh, Russia has, has put on more of a push for domestic adoptions. The thinking and the, the concern is that the healthier children are being being adopted domestically in Russia, therefore the only the uh, potentially less healthy kids are being referred for international adoption. Sure. Let, let me let me ask, answer that last question first and, and say that uh, part of the part of the problem of, of, of adopting from, from many countries where alcohol use is, is prevalent is that Many physicians don't recognize the the, uh, the indicators of, of potential alcohol exposure in, in children and don't make the diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, to be honest with you, I have not seen the incidence of fetal alcohol syndrome go up uh, in Russia in the last uh, year or two. And I think one of the reasons is that, that uh, the physicians and the institutions over there really never made the diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome, so those kids wouldn't necessarily be excluded. Now, I'm making a blanket statement. Obviously, there are some physicians over there who are quite good at doing that because I have seen the diagnosis made. But for the most part, um, we, we don't see that diagnosis being made with any degree of reliability uh, over in Russia, so I don't think it's it's biased. Um, the current uh, pool of, of international adoptees to have more children with fetal alcohol syndrome uh, but that's only my experience. No, but you since you're the ones evaluating them, and and, and your clinic evaluates a lot of them. I, I think your right. experience counts for something. Right. Uh, now, there there always have been a lot of kids referred from Russia who have um, what we would look at as is having fetal alcohol syndrome. Now, let me let me just back up and talk a little bit about the diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome and fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and other terminology like fetal alcohol effect um, that can be very confusing not only to uh, to parents but also to professionals uh, who are not working in the area of, of uh, uh, FAST. Um, the really the only way that we as adoption medical professionals can make a diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome is by having a child with the characteristic facial features of fetal alcohol syndrome. We can never tell you whether a child has a brain that's been affected by alcohol because we are not able to do any testing and the Russians uh, aren't doing any testing. Uh, and, And testing can't be done at the age that most of these kids are being referred to either tell us that a child has uh, uh, the brain effects of alcohol um, or suggest that that that, that may be true. So we're only picking out the kids with obvious, very clear alcohol exposure early in pregnancy um, that has caused major abnormalities in facial features to the extent that we can make that diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome. 
And when we do that, we see probably 4 to 5% of referrals from Russia um, have um, fetal alcohol syndrome. A higher percentage of kids will eventually show up to have abnormalities that could be consistent with the spectrum of problems that we see with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which is how many did you say I missed that? Four to five percent has have have what you think of as uh, FAS, and then what additional percentage did you say that you would expect? Well, it, it's it, it's hard to know. Um, because no one's ever done that that study. Because you know we never know whether or not kids are having emotional and behavioral problems because of their time with an institutional care or because that they were exposed to alcohol early in life. Mm-hmm. One of the difficulties of, of making the diagnosis is that the types of problems that we see uh, in kids, uh, primarily related to frontal lobe function, um, can be the same symptoms can be caused either by neglect or by alcohol exposure. So we're probably never going to know. But kind of the general rule of thumb is that the incidence of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or some issues that might be related to alcohol exposure may be three to four times what we see as the base level of fetal alcohol syndrome. So there's a large number of kids from Russia who are going to be affected over the long term by alcohol. Mm-hmm. What are some of the warning signs for a family that says this really isn't something I want to deal with or I want to minimize my risks? What are the warning signs that you can ask to get information about pre-referral or can you look for in a referral? Sure. Um, well, again, we go back to stacking the deck because you can never totally exclude alcohol exposure. Uh, what you'd like is a baby who was uh, a normal birth weight, a normal head size, normal length, uh, who is growing within the normal range that we would we would expect with an institutional care setting, who is having um, uh, development that is on par with what we would expect in an institutional setting. And again, both of these, growth and development, may be a little bit delayed, but we would expect that within institutional care settings. Um, and who who is old enough that we can evaluate their facial features uh, accurately um, to see whether or not they might look like a child who has been alcohol exposed. And generally speaking, um, I would look for a child between, uh, referred between 6 and 12 months of age, if that's possible, but of course that's changing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Although it's the, usually changing towards getting older, not younger. Right, exactly. Now actually the, the children who are about 2 years of age have the most characteristic facial features of fetal alcohol syndrome. As kids get older, um, their lip and the philtrum, which is that groove between the base of the nose and the upper lip, um, change so it does not appear as flattened or the lip uh, appear as thin as we would uh, use for diagnostic criteria. But really, um, growth, to some extent development, um, and facial features are the most important um, criteria that we use to make that diagnosis. Now, it always helps if we have some indication of mother's alcohol consumption. Um, it's often not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and even it, when, I mean, and, and it's its lack of being there doesn't tell you a lot either. I, no, no, uh, it doesn't. We, we did a, a show on October 1st um, on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders uh, with Dr. Julian Davies. And one of the sure. things he said that I thought was Good, he said. The best predictor of whether a mother is going to drink during her pregnancy is her lifestyle pre-pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And now, in international adoption, even in, even with domestic adoption, that may not be available. But uh, that is also something that you can ask. Well, I think the other thing we see a number of older children referred because of family disruption uh, due to termination of parental rights. And in those situations, we often do get more detailed history from the mother about the mother and the court records, and we know that kids who come into care after having parental rights terminated at a later age have a much higher risk of, of alcohol exposure. So again, what, what Julian Davies said is true. The lifestyle of the mother really predicts uh, the risk factor in the child. Here's a question from Stephanie. We're adopting from Ethiopia. I understand from your book and from a few shows that you have done that alcohol isn't a huge problem. My question is whether you are seeing an increase in alcohol from Ethiopia. Also, I believe that they use other intoxicants there. Are these substances causing problems? 
Well, um, the use of alcohol by women in most cultures, um, most traditional cultures, is very limited. Um, and I would suspect that that still is the way it is in Ethiopia. If, if drinking is done, it's, it's primarily by men. And, and individuals who have the economic ability to be able to do that kind of thing. I mean, in Ethiopia, most families are so destitute that they're spending their money um, on actual food, and, and that's not even enough. Where we start seeing the use of alcohol is in um, cultures where alcohol use is is common, and that would be Russia, um, and in modernizing uh, cultures that are adopting uh, a more Western standard for the behavior of women, and where I would look at it is Korea. Mm -hmm. We see as many referrals uh, mentioning alcohol from Korea now uh, as we do from Russia. And as a matter of fact, uh, one of my associates went back through the records um, this last year, and it was about 80% of the referrals that mentioned alcohol. But see, I have a question about that, because I also have, have been aware of that. And, and the times of study that, and, and the discussions I've had with international adoption doctors is that what they're saying is that yet they are not seeing the pro as these children are aging and now getting into the ages where you would be begin to start seeing some of the effects of fetal alcohol syndrome, they're not being seen as much from the, the kids from Korea. Is, is, that a, is that an accurate statement even well, now? I think, I think that generally is accurate, but let me, let me make a couple comments. Okay. Um, first of all, um, we are seeing more children with facial features that are consistent with fetal alcohol syndrome uh, from Korea. Um, and, and this goes along with, with uh, the increased drinking. But there are other factors besides the degree of alcohol consumption that, that uh, factor into the equation of who's affected and who's not affected. If you're well-nourished, if you have good medical care, if you're healthy, you're younger, etc. These are all uh, factors that decrease the chance of alcohol affecting uh, a child. When we're, when we're dealing with Korea, we're dealing with a generally healthy and quite young population. Uh, when we're de dealing with places like Russia, we're dealing with an older less healthy um, uh, population of moms. So I, I think there are a number of factors that, that uh, enter into this. But, you know, we are seeing more alcohol use in, in Korea, and we will mm -hmm. see more problems related to that, although it's certainly at the present time not in the same magnitude that we see from Eastern Europe. Is that is that because that for whatever reason, and this has always been interesting to me, that uh, when pregnant women who are considering adoption plan in Korea are asked, there is a almost an unnatural degree of honesty, and I, I can't I, I say that because when I talk with adoption counselors here in the U.S. and Dr. Davies and others, uh, domestically we don't see that degree of honesty, and I, I'm curious as to why that is. I, I don't know whether it's because there's little shame, because there's not as much awareness associated with that. I don't know. What what is um, what are you saying? Well, I, I would I would I would think you know when you're having such a high uh, percentage report alcohol use that they, they probably are being more uh, transparent about uh, what they're doing during pregnancy and and many times we see very very minimal uh, exposure you know mm -hmm. at one drink at three months uh, and none since that so you know we can we can pretty much uh, discount that but but there is a very very poor understanding of alcohol in uh, in Korea in terms mm -hmm. of effect on the pregnancy and when you uh, one of one of my students actually who was a Korean adoptee went over and did a, did a survey um, and the you know the women that she surveyed really didn't know that alcohol was a problem mm -hmm. so you know if you don't think it's a problem so sure you're going to report it mm -hmm. so I think that's I think all that, I can figure why else because that, that what would what would account for that distinction right um, yeah, I've heard that as well from Koreans saying, "Well, it's not a problem because I'm, I was eating. I always drank while I was eating, and you know, uh, or I'm yeah. anyway right. for whatever reason that it's it's not considered a problem to them." Um, right. Yeah. Um, let's go back to Stephanie's question. What about the other uh, intoxicants that uh, are more common? In uh, she was asking specifically about Ethiopia. And I don't remember the name of the substance, but there is a substance that I, I have read about that uh, more indigenous people are, are using. Uh, right. Well, t to be honest with you, I, I can't give you any uh, any valid information about that. What I can say is that we see 
a lot of children that are exposed to drugs. Um, and if you look at the effects of virtually any drug compared to alcohol, alcohol is the single most potent teratogen that we have um, that we understand uh, in, in terms of, of brain development uh, for babies. You know, back in the epidemic of cocaine use in, in uh, this country when it first started coming out, people were, you know, really afraid mm -hmm. that cocaine was going to cause major neurodevelopmental problems in, in children. And it does have some effects, but it's, it's vanishingly small compared to the effects of alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, and often very difficult to tease out from the socioeconomic um, factors that influence a child's development within a um, drug-using family. It's so, so it's so hard that the one legal drug, you know, the alcohol is uh, legal, at least here oh, in many other countries, is absolutely. the one that causes you know, the most tetrogenic effects. It's just right. Awful. Right. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm going to have to be uh, picking and choosing amongst the, the questions we have left. Um, here's a question. This is an interesting one from Trudy. Uh, I work for an agency and have often wondered if there are any studies on how kids with special needs adapt emotionally once adopted. I know it can vary, but in many countries, these kids get more individual attention because of their condition. Just anecdotally, I've seen these kids, such as with missing limbs or heart problems, fit in so smoothly and easily. I wonder if it is just a coincidence, or has Dr. Johnson seen it also? Well, you know, I'm getting to my anecdotal experience, and I would say that, uh, you know, families who adopt these children um, with appropriate expectations, uh, um, you know, the kids do extremely well. Um, you know, there's uh, Tatiana McFadden, who uh, is one of our world's leading Paralympians, uh, was adopted when she was four from a Russian orphanage with uh, violent dysplasia. Um, she's got a sister who's missing a leg. Um, you know, they're they're living full, wonderful lives uh, um, with the help of their families and uh, doing extremely well. So I'm I'm very enthusiastic about families uh, adopting children with, with special needs because I think if their expectations are appropriate, um, they will often do extremely well. Uh, both in terms of their of their uh, you know being a uh, contributing member of society and living a happy and, and extremely productive life. Um, sometimes they do um, well in their countries of origin, but many times they do not have the medical care necessary for them to to achieve their greatest potential and uh, don't have the uh, the support of a society which which allows them to be fully integrated. Uh, for instance, a lot of kids with special needs can't go to school in uh, in many countries. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm very enthusiastic about helping families choose to adopt children um, with special needs. Here is uh, a question from Roger, and I think this will be our last question, then we're going to talk about a few other things here. Uh, Roger says, the timing of your show couldn't be better. We have just received a referral for an 18-month-old that has tested positive for hepatitis. There are finding out if it is hepatitis B or C. What is the prognosis for kids with either hep B or C? How contagious is it to the rest of the family? Mm -hmm. Well, excellent question. And uh, let me start out by saying, first of all, you have to make sure you know what tests were done and when they were done and make sure that they were interpreted correctly. I've had children who were billed as having uh, chronic hepatitis uh, B uh, and someone had just uh, misinterpreted the laboratory test because that can happen even among uh, experienced physicians. Okay, prognosis for hepatitis B and hepatitis C. Back when I started in adoption, hepatitis B was the HIV of that era, era. and parents were, were crushed to find out that they were adopting a child with uh, with hepatitis B. That has changed dramatically, one, because people are much more concerned about HIV, but also because we have a very effective hepatitis B vaccine so that all children are, are now immunized against hepatitis B and that families can be immunized against hepatitis B. So there really is little, if any, chance with appropriate immunizations that a child with hepatitis B will transmit it to a member of the family or to one of their playmates. So that has taken a huge burden off of, off of families, and we don't see um, families who have adopted children with hepatitis B be any more stressed about things than uh, um, families who adopt children without hepatitis B. 
there are issues that that child will have to face in the future. There is an increased risk of cirrhosis. There is an increased risk of liver cancer. However, most of these issues occur um, later on in adulthood, 40s, 50s, 60s. The, uh, the prognosis for a healthy childhood is actually quite excellent. And ironically, the children who actually do have some degree of liver inflammation respond best to the type of treatment that we have and actually can be cured. So uh, for the most part, and it all, and it all depends individually because it can vary, um, children with hepatitis B are going to have a full, normal life and not put their family at risk. Hepatitis C is a little bit different because there is no immunization for hepatitis C. Happily, the risk of transmission of hepatitis C to family members is much less uh, than it is for hepatitis B. Um, so even um, couples where one spouse has had uh, hepatitis C and they've been living together for decades, uh, the other spouse is still negative. Um, it can be transmitted. It takes a lot of exposure to the virus. And so some degree of, of uh, care must be exercised, you know, no sharing of toothbrushes, cleaning up uh, blood spills using uh, aseptic technique. Um, but the, the risk of hepatitis C is primarily to that child uh, uh, itself and not to people surrounding uh, them, although it, it, it can be transmitted. Children with hepatitis C have a variable course. Uh, some uh, develop um, significant liver problems earlier in life and others don't. So it's very important to be followed by a good pediatric gastroenterologist who can monitor and uh, often do liver biopsies to make sure that that uh, the liver is, is doing okay. You know, and before we, uh, we are unfortunately not going to have time to talk greatly about uh, any of your current research, but anytime I do a show where we are talking about the potential risks of adoption, either internationally or domestic, I, I want to, I think it's only fair that we talk about some of the successes. And, and uh, the International Adoption Project did some interesting work. I don't know if you've done any follow-ups. This has been a number of years ago talking about how children adopted internationally uh, fare later in life, and the reports were quite uh, quite good. Uh, have, have you done anything that has followed up on that? Well, Megan Gunner, who is one of my associates and a professor at the Institute of Child Development um, and who was the principal investigator of the International Adoption Project study, has continued to follow these kids as they have gotten older and look at their uh, emotional development, look at their behavioral development, and look at their cognitive development. And so those, those, those studies are, are ongoing uh, right now. I think the important, um, at least the things that I feel are important from the Inter International Adoption Project is how successful international adoption has been. Uh, families, by and large, 90% are, are extremely happy with their decision to adopt internationally, and, uh, you know, I think that if you if you queried uh, birth parents on any, any given day, you'd probably find that 90% were happy that they had a child and maybe 10% weren't. <laughs> Depending um, on the day and the age of the right, child, exactly. you're exactly right. You know, yes. children, children present challenges, whether they're mm -hmm. adopted or whether they're biologic kids, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kids turn out well. They're, they're just as healthy as their peers or even healthier. They're doing well in school. And, um, you know, the kids that are exhibiting problems are the kids that had multiple issues prior to adoption. They were older. They were severely neglected. Um, all of those factors um, translate into, into a higher risk situation. And for the most part, families do an absolutely marvelous job. You know, environment is 50% of, of how a kid turns out. And, you know, we, we, we focus on genetics, but environment is just as uh, important and adoptive families, you know, one of the joys of working in adoption medicine is, you know, you can't imagine a, a better group of, of parents uh, to work with. There's nothing that they won't do for their kids. Boy, I'll second that. Thank you, Dr. Dana Johnson, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. If you want to reach Dr. Johnson or the International Adoption Clinic at the University of Minnesota, you can go to their website, which is www.medmed.umn.edu slash pedspeds 
slash IAC for International Adoption Clinic. At that site on the lower left-hand side, you can also click on, there's a little symbol for the International Adoption Project. Some of their research is up online there. Um, and if you would like to support their research, there is a donate button there as well. I'd like to also say for the parents who are asking questions about fetal alcohol syndrome and fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, I have extensive list of resources at my site uh, on on that uh, that disorder. Uh, and we're going to move this discussion over to the Facebook Creating a Family group. If you have any additional questions or want to just talk about some of what we've heard today, please join us over there on Facebook. You have been listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. You can replay this show or download it as a podcast from iTunes, and you can get both the replay and the podcast from the radio page at creatingafamily.com. Uh, next week, the show, February 11th, is going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about how to know if you're ready to move to donor egg or donor sperm in infertility treatment. My guest will be psychologist Carol Jones. Join me for these shows, and please tell everyone you know about the Creating a Family show. See you next week. Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at you, savings coming at you. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.